CP Podcast 79. So research, of course, is a fundamental part of physiotherapy and trying to turn that research into our actual practice is even more important. But is it as easy as just reading the abstract and going on our way? Absolutely not. And in this episode, we have the fabulous Marie Welsh to dive into the critical details about implementing evidence in practice. Right, Marie, welcome back. Thank you so much. This is a really thought-provoking episode, so I'm really glad that we have you on. So we're going to talk about challenges of implementing evidence-based practice. What is one of the first key issues for you? I think the probably the most important starting point is that obviously evidence-based practice is really important. There's reasons why all this research is done and it's important that we are able to implement it and to be able to guide patients on what the evidence is saying. That being said, I think it's also important to recognise some of the limitations of it or some of the challenges. So for me, when you look at some of the research studies, particularly when you think about MSK, um, there's always loads and loads of exclusions, exclusion criteria um, to studies. So they'll exclude people over the age of 80 or the diabetics or people with a history of such and such. And obviously in clinical practice, that doesn't happen. And that might massively skew how this patient reacts to this evidence-based treatment that you're trying to implement because that's what the research says. So I think it's important to kind of recognise that in research studies, they are able to cherry pick, if you like. Um, Again, when you're thinking about implementing something that research has shown, have a little look at what the paper is saying in terms of the patient groups that they're looking at, not only the exclusion criteria, but for example, quite a lot of studies use patients in secondary care rather than primary care, because it's a bit easier in terms of cohorts, I imagine, um, to kind of pin them down. So that might influence things because the research study is done on people that have already had potentially primary care treatment and have ended up in secondary care for needing kind of that expert opinion if you like. Just talk us through that Marie could you just mention what is the difference between primary care and secondary care just for those who may not be familiar? So primary care is through kind of GP referral self-referral to a physio so say you've got tennis elbow it's not settling down so you want to go and see someone about it the first kind of input that you get through the healthcare system through your GP through the physio at at your local physio clinic would be classed as primary care secondary care is when a referral is then made usually to a hospital so from an MSK setting we're talking about orthopedics um, for specialist opinion there yeah, and therefore someone else has assessed it in order to bring it to your attention. So what you're saying And they is- will already have gone through a treatment profile of some description, whether that's rehab, painkillers, injections, um, whatever you like. So one of the reasons that I bring this up is um, UK Frost is a, is a research study done on a secondary care patient cohort. So those people going through the different intervention arms in UK Frost which is the big study looking at frozen shoulders have potentially already had primary care input so that's just something important to bear in mind when you're thinking about trying to implement some of the things that these research studies are showing is thinking about how applicable this is to the patient sat in front of you and that's not to say ignore what the research study has come up with in terms of conclusion it's just think don't beat yourself up if you're doing your lovely evidence-based practice based on such and such paper but it isn't quite cutting the mustard 
Thank you so much, Marie. And absolutely, you're right here. The UK Frost Trial is a really good example of this because the UK Frost Trial, for those of you who may not be familiar, is a trial looking at the different treatments for frozen shoulder, which one is best. And they separated it into physiotherapy, a manipulation under anaesthetic, and a capsule release, a arthroscopic surgery being the third one. And the idea being is that this was done on secondary care patients. So patients who have already failed the first natural interventions, painkillers, general exercises, stretches, they've already failed that and therefore they're the ones being used. And therefore you're excluding a large group of people who naturally would have got better with perhaps just physiotherapy without using needing to use the other interventions. But because you're using that very specific cohort group, you're effectively getting the worst frozen shoulders. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why it's really important when you're looking at these research papers to implement into your practice that you're aware of these kind of things, because not for one moment should we be advocating that anybody that gets a frozen shoulder should be going for an MUA, which is essentially what the outcome of the paper was, that an MUA was most cost effective and had equitable um, results compared to the other two. If you had someone who's got frozen shoulder for three weeks, we should not be saying you need an MUA. But the context in this is really important, that that was the cohort of patients that they chose to use. Therefore, it's just important when we're thinking about how we present this and how we use evidence in our practice that we're not completely swayed by these things and that we have got that background understanding. That is a fabulous example, Marie, and really puts it into perspective. So thank you for that. I think one thing to say is that, unfortunately, research trials have to include inclusion exclusion criteria, don't they? Because otherwise, it's really difficult to genuinely assess, is the intervention we're studying truly what is contributing to the success or failure of this patient's outcomes? Because as you said, you said earlier about diabetics, for example, and, they, and for example, frozen shoulder again, we know that a risk factor for frozen shoulder is diabetes and that patients with diabetes often have more challenging outcomes with frozen shoulder. So they might have to exclude diabetics from that cohort because they want to get a clean slate, as it were, in terms of who they're testing, rather than having people where they say, oh, well, they didn't get better because of the diabetes, not because of the intervention. But as a result, like you said, that cherry picking makes it difficult in practice. So I totally appreciate that. So the next thing we wanted to talk about was how physiotherapy is implemented in these trials, Marie. So what were your thoughts on this? Um, again, it's another really interesting thing to look at when you're looking at all your papers. So often you'll see with the physio arm of trials that it will involve patients being seen, I don't know, three times a week in person for a period of 12 weeks. Specifically within the NHS, there are very, very few places that I think people would be able to be seen even weekly for 12 weeks, let alone three times a week as a hypothetical example. So sometimes it's looking at what the trial setup is actually like and whether that's feasible to be able to deliver, particularly in the current healthcare climate that we're in. And often that that's not very transferable. That's not to say that it's completely impossible. Patients should be going home and doing the home exercise programmes. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be that it's face-to-face -face, um, supervised. You could replicate that three times a week as per the trial in terms of one supervised session to self-directed but that's another thing to kind of think about and also another note in terms of 
the exercises that are used in trials, you'll find that there are very, very few trials where the exercises are actually standardised. So even when we've got a study comparing physio to, I don't know, an injection from an MSK perspective, there's very few studies where those exercises that are being used are actually detailed anywhere. Absolutely. So that makes it a bit more difficult because how do you how do we know what was done and what was the right thing and arguably exercises should be a very much an individual thing based on people's pain their function levels what they can manage in terms of day-to-day activity so even if there was a really prescriptive program that might not be right for everybody that you see either so yeah there's very few studies that I can think of within an MSK setting where there is a really clearly defined exercise program perhaps beyond leap Leap's the only one where I can think where they really detail things. What's Leap? It's the lateral hip pain study that Alison Grimaldi did. And I believe that the um, in the appendices, there's a really lovely program there that talks through all of the different exercises and the stages that they use for rehab for um, lateral hip pain. But beyond that, I'm struggling to think of any studies that I've read from an MSK context that have actually detailed what exercises were done in a similar way to that study. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And this is really pivotal, actually, because I've often seen studies where they said, oh, yeah, physiotherapy wasn't effective. And then you go and look at the exercises or they may have detailed the exercises and you're thinking, why on earth have they done those exercises? Um, And so how can you say physiotherapy wasn't effective when (laughs) the physiotherapy wasn't actually being effectively provided exactly and sometimes where there is some minor details of what exercises or what what treatments because it might be that manipulations massage also falls under that umbrella of what's been looked at in the trial it's interesting to know who decided that that was best practice within physio so again was it that there's a leading voice within that particular specialty that said this is the best practice of exercises that we use, or this is very typical of what is used to treat meniscal injuries in in healthcare, in physio, in in this setting, um, or is it just some random person as part of the trial who maybe hasn't worked clinically for a fair amount of time and has just picked some exercises out of the air I don't know not very many studies detail that um so it's all things to think about food for thought yeah and and classic things like was it just a sheet of exercises were given did the patients actually get shown how to do the exercise did they get given instructions on what to do if the exercise was too painful to regress it or progress it and all those things we sometimes have to not take for granted when you're reading the research trial but it's kind of commonly accepted that they won't go into that much detail because they can't go into that much detail. If there's 472 patients in a study, how can you say, well, the first one said Absolutely. no, the second one said yes, the third one, it was too painful. So we stopped them doing exercise. And also for when you're talking about, when you actually think about how research studies are set up, they're usually multi-site. Yes. So we're not even talking about one or two clinicians working in the same practice or the same community hospital or department. We're potentially talking about, so for example, within um, the NHS in the UK for ongoing MSK studies, you could have 40 different hospitals, the length and breadth of the country. How on earth do you standardise that if you haven't already come up with some kind of, here are your 10 exercises that you're allowed to choose from as part of this study? Yeah. 
And then should we, if that is what the study setup is, here's this list of 10 exercises, these are the only 10 that you can use. If physio comes out as not being very useful, is that representative of what we can actually offer? Or is that a limitation based on the fact that there were only 10 options of treatment and some of them might not have suited that patient? So it's all lots of things to think about. And this is why it's really important to read the entire article of your studies rather than just the headline in the abstract, because the abstract does not give you the overall picture of what's actually happened. And sometimes you need to think about these things as to how much weight you give and obviously not beating yourself up if your patient sat in front of you with diabetes over the age of 60, all the exclusion criteria that wasn't allowed in this study um, and you've given them the same exercises, but they were too painful and they've not done very well. That's not on you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing to kind of consider is that whilst we're kind of picking a bone in it and saying, oh, they should detail everything. You also can't absolutely. detail everything. You can't make it so specific that if a patient says that it's painful choose this exercise instead if a patient doesn't have time then do this exercise instead it can't be that prescriptive and you just have to take it as an overall thought process they were given leg strengthening exercises or quad strengthening exercises. you have to do it as a given because when this research is implemented in the real world when we tell patients yes you for a rotator cuff tear you do rotator cuff strengthening exercises every physio in the world will do it slightly differently so you almost have to allow it to be ambiguous for it to fit what will happen in the real world so it's there's a there's a natural debate there isn't it? it's yeah, really difficult absolutely it is and I'm, I'm really conscious i don't want this podcast to turn into a research bashing because research is so so important i think one of the reasons that i wanted to do this podcast was because there's lots of people out there that read studies then try and implement what the studies have shown and then get really upset when they haven't been able to replicate the results and i think it's just really important to know about the nuances research is super important and there's reasons why they're ambiguous with exercises and things but i think in it's just giving context to those things i mean for example when you think about how most MSK research studies are done, it's with outcome measures that patients fill in. I don't know about you, Khalid, but I find when I give patients outcome measures at the beginning and the end of treatment, they can't remember what they said at the beginning and the scores sometimes don't look different. And, and that's the results that are coming out. And that's not to say that's wrong. How else are we going to measure meaningful improvement for patients other than using outcome measures? Um, I guess you could use objective measures, but from a subjective perspective, you're going to need to use some kind of measure to look for improvement. But I'm sure most of you will agree when from your clinical experience, paper getting people to fill in paper questionnaires isn't always super accurate but how else are they going to measure this in research that it's it's a kind of a lose-lose situation I guess yeah and so as you said it's, it's just another indication that we should always listen to research but we are allowed to be critical of it I suppose and, and I suppose that's what critical appraisal is all about which actually brings us on nicely to perhaps the final topic that we were thinking of discussing which is confirmation bias absolutely and how critical we are of certain uh, studies so for example i'll happily use myself here there's a natural tendency that if you have a certain belief about a specific treatment and a piece of research comes out supporting or negating that treatment you make a decision about it based on your confirmation bias so example 
Achilles tendinopathy. Use these strengthening exercises. Now, if I agree with those strengthening exercises before the paper came out, I'm much more likely to say, yep, absolutely brilliant paper, so useful, I'll read the abstract, the abstract says yes, so that's good enough for me, right, I'm happy. If the abstract says no, I'm going to be much more critical. Well, what were the inclusion and exclusion criteria? How many times did they do it? Hang on a minute, they did it four times a week. That's not possible in practice, so therefore it's all wrong, it's all wrong, it's all wrong. That's confirmation bias. Almost cherry-picking or choosing how to react to a piece of research based on what we already thought. So an example of this in real-life practice is the brilliant recent uh, clinical practice guideline on plantar fasciitis or plantar fasciopathy, plantar heel pain from Morrissey et al. in 2021, in which they highlighted that strengthening exercises, particularly what was previously thought of as loading exercises for the plantar fascia, basically doing heel raises, but on your toes only with a towel underneath the toes, were not effective for treating this condition, plantar fasciopathy, or at least it was identified that this was not a treatment that they included in their best practice guideline. And lots of physios in the past will have used those kind of exercises and said, yeah, this is how we treat plantar fasciitis. This is how we treat it. This is how we treat it. And instead, this best practice guideline said, no, actually, we're not going to include that. We're going to suggest stretching instead. I'm not going to go into the ins and outs. We've got, we've got, we've got a brilliant evidence-based practice uh, webinar on plantar fasciopathy where we go through that in more detail but the basic concept is loads of physios were saying but I do strengthening I do strengthening I do strengthening why can I not do strengthening anymore because their bias was strengthening is the right thing to do so it sets a real challenge when suddenly the research comes out and says no you shouldn't do strengthening and that's a really difficult moment for clinicians naturally how do you react to that research no no they must be wrong because did they do this and oh no that can't be right because there must have been some mistake because we definitely do strengthening so it's a challenge that isn't it yeah absolutely and i think especially when that feeds into pathways so if you've got a specific setup of treatment profile for certain conditions before you'd consider referring on or before they'll be accepted in secondary care for example and suddenly the narrative changes about what treatments we should be offering but you're not set up for that it then makes things very difficult so shockwaves are another example there's lots of emerging evidence for that in terms of treating musculoskeletal conditions but not all services have access to shockwave so again it, it kind of you know i'll if my service didn't do shockwave i'd probably go out and look at how many other ways can I treat this condition without needing shockwave? And is there anything that I can find to suggest that shockwave isn't effective because it's a cost occurred to my service? Or, you know, there's lots of ways you can spin things as well. And certainly cost is a factor when thinking about research implementation and evidence-based practice too. But yeah, I totally agree with you. I'm a sucker for confirmation bias and I have to really check myself sometimes to go, am I is this study actually terrible or is it just showing that physio is not as good as what I hoped it would be? Absolutely. And that's the thing, isn't it? Physio, you know, when, when there's a study that says physio wasn't effective, our natural confirmation Disagree. bias is, what? That can't be right. What did they do? How many times? What exercises did they do? That's I wouldn't do that. Exactly. <laughs> I can't believe they did that. That's the wrong way to do it. No wonder they didn't get better. That's confirmation bias. And we see this on social media a lot, don't we, where we see individuals praising certain pieces of evidence when it agrees with what they already thought but when you pose them a different piece of research that negates it are they then going to say 
oh, oh, that's really interesting. Oh, maybe I should change my approach. Or do they say, no, there must be a problem there. And that's the norm for all of us. I don't want to suggest that only certain individuals do confirmation. We all do. Subconsciously. It's a subconscious thing, isn't it? Yeah. I remember when I was at university and having to write dissertations or having to write a systematic uh, kind of literature review on stuff. And I'm going through the research on what I'm looking at. As soon as there's an article that says it's good, I grab it. As soon as there's an article that says it wasn't good, oh, don't use that because that doesn't support what I'm trying to write. And that's confirmation bias, isn't it? And so I think the moral of that story is, like you said, Marie, we have to be open to both sides of the coin. We have to be open that when there is a paper or a piece of research that challenges what we previously thought was right, we have to sit down with it and read it and say, actually, maybe it's got some merit. Maybe it's got some reasonable suggestions in that. Maybe I am the one who needs to change. Yeah. Or maybe it is just that there is a better intervention out there than what yeah. we can offer. So, the again... One of the challenges implementing evidence-based practice. So Marie, thank you so much. That's all really, really interesting stuff. How would you summarise some of the key learnings from this podcast? I would summarise with research is really important to evidence-based practice and clinical care delivery. Be inquisitive about the studies. Don't just read the abstract. Um, make sure that you know how applicable this is to the setting that you're working in the patient cohort you're working with and don't beat yourself up if patients don't get better even when you've followed the research to a t wonderful thank you so much marie always a pleasure having you on see you next time thank you awesome i really hope you guys enjoyed this one you don't know what you don't know and until we go through some of these concepts and ideas it's really difficult to understand why these things don't necessarily work in practice so i really hope this has opened up your eyes and given you a chance to think about what you do in practice thank you so much for listening see you soon on the cp podcast <laughs>